Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. We provide wisdom for personal growth and healthy relationships. Stick with us and you'll gain practical tools and insights that will help you be a healthier and happier you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy Podcast. We are so glad that you're here today as we jump back into our interview with Stephanie Bolio. Today she's going to continue to share about how to connect with your teen. She'll also share a little bit about working with individuals and couples in her private practice. Let's jump right back in with Stephanie. So I want to jump back a little bit to what we were talking about, about connecting with the kids here, but I want to throw you a little bit of a curveball and ask you, how would you help parents deal with kind of the angsty, low word boy who is only going to say when you say, well, how was your day? Fine. How do you help them help that child to open up more and to communicate more effectively so that you have more of an opportunity to connect? Yeah. The way you ask questions and how you ask questions is so important there because of course you, you'll get that. I don't know those types of things. If you ask closed ended questions, if I'm saying, how was your day? Good. Fine. I don't know. Those are one word answers. If you're able to say, what do you think the best quality in a teacher is and why you're getting them to think more instead of just say, I don't know. Another interesting question might be, who did you sit with at lunch? Or how did Sally respond when David said she was interested in him? Those types of questions are interesting. They're open-ended. They're kind of drawing your teen into the conversation. And then you're taking the interest in them and their friends, and they get excited. They feel validated that they're actually a human being, not just some person in their household that they feel loved and respected. And so having those open-ended questions, there are so many creative questions for teens that you can even find online if you're struggling with figuring out what are open-ended questions that will engage and bring out dialogue. Very good. So shifting gears a little bit here, I wanted to ask you, so you run a crisis text line and a lot of it sounds like regular types of struggles people kind of go through, but then going to the more extreme example with kids who are struggling with suicidality. Can you talk a little bit about how frequently you kind of see that? And then how do you help those teens manage that? Yeah, I would say that it's not as often as relationship advice or how am I dealing with this emotion, but we definitely get times when teens are texting in and they're actively suicidal. There are a bunch of different ways that we go about it, but one way is what's making you feel suicidal or what situation is happening that makes you feel this way. And oftentimes just listening to them and validating their feelings kind of brings them off of that. So it doesn't mean that every time we're doing an active rescue where we are sending emergency services to them, most of the time, more often than not, I would say is that. When they're feeling suicidal, it's just taking the moment, take a deep breath. What is going on in your life right now? And then of course, once they're feeling better, we ask, you know, how are you feeling? And most of the time they're like, okay, the emotion or the thoughts of suicide are over now, but I still want to get you into help. So the next step would be, if you've had that thought at all, it's let's get you resources in your own community to see a therapist or to get into a support group 
some way that you feel connected. And we have a really great relationship with the high schools that we work with on this line. And so often it's connecting the teen with the social worker on campus so that it's not just I hear about it, but the school is also aware and can walk through those situations with the teen even more so. So to follow up with that, what are some things that you can advise parents not to do if their kids are actively suicidal or they say that their friends are suicidal? What would you advise parents not to do? Some things that I hear parents do that should not be happening are blaming the student, blaming the teenager for their feelings. You're so selfish. I can't believe you're doing this. You're attention seeking. All those things are not really understanding. Is this a real threat for one? So sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But if you push those negative things onto your child, they will absolutely become a real threat. So you want to make sure that when you're dealing with your child or your teen who is having suicidal thoughts or mentioning it, that you take a deep breath yourself and say, okay, what is going on? And why are you feeling this way? It's okay that you feel this way. I want to help you. Those are some great things to say. Other things that should not be done are call the police right away. That can be very scary for a teen who one might not really feel in danger. They might have a feeling, but not a plan of action on how to. Those are very distinct. If my child has a thought, I just want to talk it out. If my child has a thought and a plan of action, I'm going to take some pills or, you know, something like that, then you want to escalate it too. So talking it out and then, okay, can we get you some help? Can we get you into therapy? If you cannot be safe tonight, okay, we need to probably take you to a hospital. You know, it should be kind of in that progression of how you handle it. And if you can drive your teen to the hospital, it's way better than having a police officer come and take your student to the hospital because then they have your support and they're comfortable in their own car and they can comfortably go into a safe hospital until they're feeling like they can process some of those things without having a plan of action. Another thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to blame yourself in front of your teenager. Because if you start to say, well, I'm just a terrible mom or dad, you know, you're doing this because of me, that's taking the focus on off of who it should be. The focus should be on your teen, not yourself. And so making sure that you don't bring your own emotions into it, but that you allow your teen to process and be open and honest. You don't want to like shut your teen down and they not feel comfortable talking to you about it. So that's a little bit about how to deal with the crisis. Now, more of a general question is, when should parents get a professional involved in their kid's life? That's an excellent question. When there's any kind of trauma and you can't process it yourself or you can't um, help them through those emotions, those really intense emotions, getting a therapist involved is great. If you've tried all the things that we've talked about in this podcast and you're still not seeing a change getting a therapist involved is a great thing. If you feel like, well, they've been depressed and they're not engaging in things that they used to engage in. And that's been for a while, a month or more, 
you probably want your team to see a professional because they might be able to process things in a therapy session that they might not be able to be free to talk about in the home. And then two, a therapist can come alongside a parent and help support the parent as well on how to help the student heal and process things efficiently. How can you help the parents frame how to suggest therapy to their children or how to let their teens know that they're going to be going to therapy? Right. So that can be a difficult conversation to have with your teen. It really depends on what kind of teen do you have on your hands? Do you have somebody who might be willing to go or do you need to say, it seems like you're having a hard time talking to me about things and that's okay, but I really want to make sure that you are getting the support you need, we're going to try therapy. And then you can talk about, you know, what's the right type of therapist and what kind of therapist your teen might look into for finding the right person for them. So that might be a great conversation to have. If the teen is just not interested at all, you can offer to sit in with the therapist and your team. You know, there are so many different areas on how to do that at first. And even if your teen is like, there is no way at all, I am ever going to step foot in a therapist's office. I have often had teen parents come in and we work through how to help that teen through the parents. So oftentimes, if you change the situation at home, you could often change the situation and the feeling for the teen. So Either way, you would be getting support, whether it's through the parents coming to therapy or the teen coming to therapy themselves. I totally agree with that. I think a lot of times what's most effective is the parents working on themselves and how they're interacting with the kid that tends to make the most changes. The kid coming to therapy definitely can be beneficial, especially if they're in like a suicidal state and help them with their self-esteem and how they view themselves. But a lot of it comes from the dynamic within the home and how the parent and child are interacting. So if you can't get your kid to come to therapy, if you can't drag them kicking and screaming, you going in yourself could be a great resource to help your child out. Yeah, absolutely. The other question I had that I didn't get to because there's so much good information that you're giving us is in your private practice, what is kind of your favorite form of therapy to do and why is it your favorite form? Well, this probably should be no surprise since I am related to Tim and Ruth is that EMDR is my absolute favorite. The reason being is that with talk therapy, of course, we get to process through things. We get to talk about things. We get to dive into things, but it's such a slow process. Whereas EMDR the next week, you know, I hear about my clients who are excited and they're like, I would have responded this way before EMDR. And now I respond in this more positive way. And I think that is so cool. Often I will have a wife come and do EMDR and the the husband is really not into therapy. And then after a few sessions, he's so excited. He wants to do EMDR for himself too. And so it's so cool to see that process can be so quick and we can reach more people because you don't have to be in therapy for years to see a change and a positive outcome in your life. You know, it's so funny you say that about the husbands because men generally are more resistant to going into therapy. I always tell the wives when they can't get their husbands to come in, hey, don't worry about it. You just come in, you do your work. And 
the best way you can sell him is by you being different through the process. And if you are different, then he will look at it and be like, maybe there is something there. Maybe I do want to try it. Maybe I will go in. And so it's very interesting that you have that very same experience on your end where when the wives experience a change, the husband are like, okay, let me come in. I want to, I want some of that action. Yes. It's so exciting to do therapy with people because you see that positive change and they get excited and you get excited to see that change in them. So it's cool to walk through that with them. When you're working with couples in your practice, what do you see is one of the major problems that's bringing them in? I would say that when couples come in to see me, it's normally a lack of communication and difficulty understanding each other's perspective. So there's often a thought, I need to tell what I'm feeling, but not listening to the other person's perspective. And often I hear when that's happening, intimacy has been out the window for months at a time. It's so telling. If you're feeling like it's been months since you have had intimacy, there's probably a communication issue or some kind of unresolved issue in your relationship. That is something I see so often when clients come in as a couple. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's stuff that I see frequently too. But I like that you bring the intimacy issue in there. There's the communication, then that causes intimacy. I think a lot of times people look at their relationship and they isolate it to just one small section. Well, we just have this problem here. But realistically, it's this larger system that's at play. And when one thing's negatively affected, it can affect other things in a negative way as well. And so I think a difficulty with that could be a kind of chicken and the egg kind of question. Do we have communication problems because we have intimacy problems or did we have intimacy problems because we have communication problems? What do you think about that? And what do you, what would you say is your solution to, well, which one caused which? And then what is the ultimate solution to that? Yeah, I think that it's hard to, as a woman, be connected intimately if you don't feel emotionally there's a connection or some kind of love and respect. For men, I think it's often that when there's a lack of intimacy, then that creates a lack of desire to communicate. Yes, lack of desire to communicate. So it's almost like this cycle that you get into and and somebody's got to break it and If one of you takes one step to break that and intentionally try to connect or try to communicate differently, then I think things start to fall in line. But then what happens is when you are getting better emotionally and communication, you kind of still forget about the intimacy. So you have to also rework that back in. It's got to be a conscious effort to make a plan. How are we going to enter this back into our relationship? Because, you know, all those aspects of a relationship are important. I've worked with a lot of couples who've gone quite a lengthy time without being intimate with each other. And I think there's a point when it's been so long that people get awkward again, almost like they have never been intimate before, where then there's this extra barrier of discomfort where it's like, oh, we're going to have sex again. That's making me uncomfortable you haven't seen me naked in three months. And so it creates this extra level of barrier, almost embarrassment to be with somebody that you're married with because you've taken a long time. Have you ever seen that with any of your clients? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And it's, you almost have to normalize it. It's okay to be awkward the first time back again. It's okay. You were at that point before when you first became intimate and it's okay to relive some of that stuff and try and be excited about it. Trying something different trying, you know, music to make it fun and exciting. And a little more comfortable the first round in. Yes. 
Now, that also brings up an interesting point going back to what you're saying before, kind of about the couples working at breaking out of the cycles that they get into. And it sounds like something that you're saying is pride can get in the way. And that can be a struggle for them to move forward. How do you help couples move past pride? Oh, that's a good one. Well, one, you have to realize that you are being prideful. Two, you have to lay down that pride, which is incredibly difficult. One thing that I like to do is to kind of work on communication and listening. So active listening. When I have a couple on the couch with me, I make them say something that they feel, something that happened that they feel I have their partner repeat back. And that's that's an important task because oftentimes when somebody's telling us something that's going to be hard to hear, we're just thinking about what is our response going to be. We're not actually hearing what they're saying. So getting them to that point of you are not responding to them, you're just listening and then repeating back, that kind of takes away some of that pride and that defense mechanism so that they could really understand the other person and vice versa. So it goes both ways where both of them are getting heard without the pride of I'm going to be right, or I'm going to be heard over you. Oh, that's another big problem is people wanting to be right when they're arguing with their spouse. I think people struggle a lot with that versus recognizing we're on the same team. We just may have different ideas how to get to our goal. Yeah, definitely. What are some ways that you help couples get over pride in a session? One of the things that I do with my couples is I talk about exiting and getting away from that uncomfortable situation as quickly as you can. And so recognizing that pride is a barrier to that. So I try to help them identify pride as an enemy to them not as something that's supporting them or something that should be defended. It's something that should be given up so that you can move forward and you can create as little additional damage in the relationship as possible by not continuing that fight any longer than is necessary. Because I think a lot of times what pride does end up doing for people is it causes them to hold even harder to their guns and then it causes them to be irrational and unfair throughout the discussion. They came in with one problem and then they develop multiple other problems because they let pride run the show. So for me, it's more just trying to help them understand how pride is a negative impact in this situation. For me, I think that I just really try to help couples to remember who it is that they're talking to and that they married that goodwill person like they talk about in love and respect. The person you married is goodwill and they aren't out to get you, right? And I think just reinstilling that hope in them for their marriage. And like Tim said, that this really is a barrier for that. Sometimes I know that in the love and respect, he talks about whoever's the most mature. I want you to be the one to step out and apologize first. And it's kind of throwing out, you know, that paradox of, well, I want to be the most mature. And I don't always use that language with them, but I think just encouraging them to remember that this isn't helping them. It really is just kind of digging their heels in. And a lot of times what I try to do is really just be a mirror to reflect. If someone is truly just standing their ground because of their pride, then really they have nothing else to stand on. And so as you mirror back to them, hey, this is what she said. Is this what you meant? Or this is the issue that I see. Then they'll begin to see, hopefully, that it really isn't benefiting their relationship. Actually, I think something you just said, Ruth, reminded me of another thing that I do, and this is more an appeal to emotion. So this helps a lot if the couple has both a boy and a girl child, but then I will ask them, I say, when your kids grow up, so this is to the wife, I'll say, if your son married a woman and she were talking to your son the way that you're talking to your husband, 
would you want to run to defend your son or would you think it was fair? And then to the husband, I'd say, if your daughter married a man, if you were talking to her, like you talk to your wife, would you want to run to defend her or would you think it was fair? And so that helps appeal to the emotion where it takes them out of this scenario and helps them to reflect, oh yeah, actually I would feel wildly different if my child's spouse were treating them that way compared to how I normally feel when I treat my spouse that way. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's so powerful because sometimes we forget that our kids are going to move out one day and it's just going to be the couple left. And how we treat each other is so important. One, not just for how we treat each other, you know, we'll make a lasting marriage, but also how our kids will grow up and they'll find a spouse who will be treating them very similar to what they're seeing in the home. I always like to tell my patients, you're raising your kids to leave you one day. Hopefully you're not living with your spouse in a way that they'll leave you one day. Yes. All right, Stephanie. And if people want to get in touch with you and gain some more of your wisdom, how can people do that? So you can go on my psychology today. If you're in central Pennsylvania, I have a psychology today profile. You can find me Stephanie Bolio, or you can reach out to me on email, stephaniebolio at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E-B-O-L-I-O at gmail.com. So I think you had said it earlier, but just for clarification, those text lines are available where? One of the text lines is for Riverside County in California. If you are in Riverside County and you are in between the ages of 11 and 24 and you don't know the number, you can reach out to me and I will give it to you. If you're in the Chicago area, you can go to linkingefforts.com or golead.co and you can either give a donation to this text line for teens. It's free for teens. Or if you're a teen in the area, you can learn more about that program. So speaking of resources, do you have any resources that you think are helpful to parents or to teens themselves? Yes, absolutely. I just ended a parenting class and we went over the book called Raising Great Kids. This is a great book for all ages. Parents who have zero to 18, 19, get this book, go through it, read it, and kind of go through the the steps and what's important and what's not important and how to implement those things. Another one is boundaries for kids and teens. Another book, if your teen is not wanting to listen, not wanting to talk, a great book is how to talk so your kids will listen and how to listen so your kids will talk. And they have a teen version as well. Those are some really great books, you know, teen podcasts that are out there. Um, A really good book for raising sons is strong mothers, strong sons. And she also has another one called strong father, strong daughter, something like that. Okay, perfect. We will make sure that we link all of that in the show notes. All right, Steph. Well, thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun and always great talking to you both. Absolutely. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. And remember your mind is a powerful thing. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it helpful, we'd love for you to take some time and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. If you have a question or topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group, Mr. and Mrs. Therapy Podcast, and let us know. 
Disclaimer, although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. Please seek professional help if you're struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988 if you are contemplating suicide.